the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. In all states. The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. If the God we worship is sovereign, we believe he is, then he must be sovereign in worship. We mustn't vie for the spotlight in God's presence. How ridiculous, how wrong. I mean that God must never become a sideshow to anything we do. His name, His kingdom, His glory must be center stage. gift of salvation to the very air we breathe, if we stop to think about all the wonderful things God has done for us, we can't help but respond with praise. But as followers of Jesus, we don't just worship God for what He has done, we worship God for who He is. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy talks about the true nature of worship. We'll find out why being saved people requires that we become people who worship. Teaching from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, here is Philip DeCourcy. Recently, I came across one of the saddest statements I've read in some time. The biographer of Horace Walpole, a prominent 18th century English author, wrote about Walpole, quote, All his tastes were minor. All his tastes were minor. Evidently, this man was the kind of man who lived life in a minor key. Here was a man who didn't dream much. Here was a man who didn't desire much. Here was a man who lived sleepily and sheepishly below a very low horizon. For this man was content with secondary things taking first place. Unimportant things making the headlines in his life. All his tastes were minor. He was majoring on the minors. And surely you'd agree with me, that's no way to live. Life is too short, and eternity is too long, and God is too glorious, and Jesus Christ too wonderful, and the gospel too important for you and I to live life to a minor key, to allow all our tastes to be minor. So with that in mind, I want to come back into chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes 1 to 7, because... Here Solomon is reminding us that the chief end of man is to glorify God. Here he's reminding us of the thing we need to major on. We need to major on God and the worship of God. Because the argument goes like this. It's quite simple. It's irrefutable. God is first. God is sovereign. 
God is above and before everything else. God is first. And if that's true, and it is true, then worship must be the overarching passion and priority of each of our lives. We need to major on worship, not minor on worship. In fact, let me remind you of the importance of worship. I came across these seven thoughts recently, and I'll share them with you. Just to reinforce how worship must be. Worship is the first and greatest commandment. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, we read, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Number two, worship is the first thing we should do when we come into God's presence. Psalm 100 and verse 4 says what? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to the Lord and praise his name. Worship is the first response we should make when we come to Christ. When Christ has lifted us out of the Mary clay, with it he will put a song in our mouths, even praise unto our God. Saved people are singing people. Worship, fourthly, is the first mark of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in the life of the Christian. In Romans 8, verse 15, what do we read? For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. Fifthly, worship is the first sign of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're told by Paul in Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, not to be drunk with wine wherein is access, but to be filled with the Spirit, and then to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in our hearts to the Lord. Sixthly, worship is one of the first characteristics of the early church. Worship marked the advent of Christianity. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, every day it says of the early Christians, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. Seventhly and finally, worship is the first essential in hearing God speak to us. What do we read in Acts 13, verse 2? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Worship is first and foremost in the life and liturgy of the church because sincere worship is the Christian's ultimate priority. We must at all costs avoid offering worship to God that's vain, empty, and lacking in meaning. And that's exactly what was going on here. They were offering worship that tantamounted to a sacrifice of fools. They were worshiping vain, empty, religious activity to God that was unacceptable. And Solomon rebukes them. And he says, walk prudently when you come to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifices for fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Don't be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, you on the earth. Let your words be few. Speak less. And when you do speak, may there be more meaning and heart to what you say. Their prayers were hollow. Their promises were empty. Their worship needed a tune-up. So Solomon, first of all, 
seems to identify several things that were lacking in their worship. This is what we call the vices of improper worship, and we're still there. And soon we'll get to looking at the virtues of proper worship. But what were the vices of improper worship? Number one, their worship lacked preparation. Secondly, their worship lacked pause. And thirdly, their worship lacked perspective. They had a diminished view of God. They had lost this elevated, transcendent vision of a thrice holy God who dwells in the heavens. They forgot there was a distinction between them and God and a great distance between them and God. You know, don't you, that light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's an amazing fact in and of itself. And the light that leaves the sun, which is 90 million miles away, takes about eight minutes to get to planet Earth. But let me stretch your minds a little bit further. Imagine one of the stars in the constellation of Orion. Some of those stars are so far away that even when light leaves those stars and travels towards planet Earth at 186,000 miles per second, it will take 520 years to get here. And that's mind-boggling and blowing, isn't it? In fact, let me help you measure that. The good Protestants that we are, okay, we like the 31st of October, 1517. That was the day that Martin Luther kneeled his thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg. On that day, light began to leave one of the stars in the constellation Orion. And it hasn't yet arrived. Indescribable. Uncontainable. That's our God. And the church here, or the believers here, to put it more specifically, in the Old Testament, had forgotten that. That's why Solomon needs to say in verse 2, For God is in heaven, and you are on the earth, and your worship lacks preparation, it lacks pause, it lacks perspective. And you know what? We reminded ourselves that the God before whom we stand dwells in unapproachable light. He's a glorious, majestic being that the angels even cover their faces in beholding him. He's mighty. He's majestic. He's sovereign. He's holy, separated from us in both the distinction of his person and the place where he dwells most gloriously. Now, we tried to apply that. We started on this fact that if that's true, then we must remind ourselves that we worship a sovereign God. Let's bring that back into our worship. Our worship, like their worship, is often out of place because God is not in his place. He's not high and lifted up in our minds. We have minimized him. We have miniaturized him. We have a God who fits in our pocket, who sits comfortably in the midst of our lives. He doesn't cause us any fear. We don't find ourselves taken up by his nature and how awesome it is. That's a missing note in their worship, and it's a missing note in ours. And we need to remind ourselves that indeed God is sovereign. He's high. He's above us. And that means that he's beyond our complete knowledge. And he's beyond our scrutiny. He's beyond our judgment. And he's beyond our questioning. We reminded ourselves of that. His ways are past finding out. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And sometimes he appoints times of suffering in each of our lives. He allows things to take place that baffle us. 
that cause us to question his love and make a judgment on his wisdom. And it's at that point we need to say to ourselves, God is in heaven and we're on the earth. Let our words be few and let our questions be fewer. Let's be careful not to try and dethrone God. I like what John Piper says, anger at sin is good, but anger at goodness is sin. That is why it is never right to be angry with God. He's always and only good, no matter how strange and painful his way is with us. When Jonah and Job were angry with God, Jonah was rebuked by God, and Job repented in dust and ashes. God is good, and what he does is good. And because his ways are past finding out, even the things that we don't like, we don't want, we would rather not have in our lives, they all work together for good. Therefore, we need to remember God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And we must worship a sovereign God. And as we do it, our words will be few and our questions will be fewer. But here's another thought. This is where we're kind of picking up. If the God they worshipped and we worship is sovereign, we believe he is, then he must be sovereign in worship. What do I mean by that? I mean that God must never become a sideshow, a footnote to anything we do in the worship service or in the meetings of the church. His name, his kingdom, his glory must be center stage. We mustn't vie for the spotlight in God's presence. How ridiculous, how wrong. True prayer begins with God, doesn't it? Jesus taught us that in Matthew 6, verse 9 following. Here's the way I want you to pray. When you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven. Here we are, Ecclesiastes 5, 2. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, prayer is not about getting our will done in heaven. It's about getting God's will done on earth. Prayers that get to heaven or prayers that begin in heaven. I've said it many times. If prayer is to be God-centered, how much more praise? How much more worship? In Psalm 115, verse 1, what do we read? Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto you be the glory. The Lord is worthy to be praised. Psalm 18, verse 3. That means that the chief end of man is to glorify God and the main aim of worship is to please God. I know that that's theology 101, but we forget it. Solomon had to remind his listeners and his readers that God is in heaven and should be the center of their worship. They stand before the very throne of the universe. Their words need to be few. Their heart needs to be right. Their sacrifices need to be meant. There can be no tomfoolery, no shenanigans in the presence of a thrice holy God who's worthy of our worship. Therefore, we cannot dishonor him in seeking to honor him. And that just is something we need to kneel to the floor. Our worship must be God-centered. Everything should be focused on God and his throne. I won't turn you there, but if you go to Revelation chapter 4, John is bid to come up into heaven. It says, and there was in the midst a throne and one who sat on the throne. That was the focus of heaven. 
A throne and one who sat on that throne. And before that throne were the angelic hosts and the redeemed of all the ages praising God. The one who had created them. The one who had redeemed them. The one who owned them twice. By birth and new birth. That's the focus of heaven. And that should be the focus of earth. God's glory. His name, His fame ought to be the headlines. And that should remind us that the singular motive for worship is to glorify God. We should have no utilitarian motive. It's about God and God alone. And that poses a warning, doesn't it? We must never use worship for any other purpose than to glorify God. Worship's not about reaching the non-Christian. And at its heart, worship's not about blessing you or me either. It's about exalting the name and fame of the one who alone is worthy to be worshipped. Listen to these words reportedly said by A.W. Tozer. And see if this doesn't be a challenge. The hardest service to get people to attend is the service where God is the only attraction. Wow. I just stopped when I read that this week in preparation. Let me say it again. The hardest service to get people to attend is the service where God is the only attraction. And you know, he's right. In fact, I chastised myself. And I thought about the way we present services often at our announcement times or when we're talking to each other. We try and butter it up. We try and make sure there's a little bit of a hook in there. We want to give you a reason for coming out. You know, you have so many important things to do. We don't want God cramping your style. So we got to give you a reason to come out other than saying, you know what, tonight at six o'clock, we're going to meet with God. That should be enough. The word will be preached. His name will be exalted. His people will come together. But too often we try and give a reason other than that so that people's interest will be stirred because they're so focused on themselves. So busy with the things of the world Give me a good reason other than God alone for coming out. In fact, I was challenging myself. At times as a pastor, I think every Christian leader feels this. At times you feel like a salesman, you know, trying to sell the meeting or sell the Bible study. But the pastor needs to see himself not as a salesman because God doesn't need to be sold. The pastor and Christian leader needs to see themselves as the tour guide. Just bring people. Like a tour guide brings someone to the mouth of the Grand Canyon. And they really don't need to say much. Your jaw just drops naturally. Wow. The Grand Canyon sells itself. And we need to get back to that within the church. We just need to bring people before God. And the glory of God and the magnificence of His nature. And the glory of His love sells itself. But you see, we're so taken up with ourselves Let's never forget that the original sin was a sin of pride and the exaltation of the self-will in the presence of God. That was Satan's sin. Listen to what we read of him in Isaiah 14. Lucifer said, I will ascend into heaven and exalt my throne above the stars of God. The audacity, blasphemy, pride, treason, in all of that, I will ascend in the presence of the one who sits on that throne? Apart from grace, we all have a pretension to divinity. 
That was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They wanted to know what God knew. That's the attraction of Mormonism and New Age theology, where you get to be your own God. We have pretensions to divinity apart from grace. We don't love ourselves too little. We love ourselves too much. We tend to live for our desires, our comforts, our ambitions. And if those desires are not met, well, then there's war. Go with me for a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're warned by Paul that in the last days, man's arrogance will know no limit. There will be a godlessness that marks society, a self-centeredness. Humanism will replace theism. Man will be the measure of all things. And Paul says, in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. Go down to verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Tell me, is that what you're seeing all around you? Of course it is. Men are bowing down before the unholy trinity of me, my, and mine. They have made their desires and their dominion the focus And that's what's happening outside the church. But as is always the danger, what happens outside the church can start happening inside the church. The church must always be on the guard that it doesn't marry itself to the age. We're not to conform ourselves to this world, but sometimes we cave into the culture. And Paul, in fact, warns the church at Ephesus here that what goes on outside can start to happen on the inside. Go to chapter 4. As he tells Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He's speaking of the church but according to their own desires. Did you notice that? Their own desires, they will heap to themselves teachers and turn their ears away from the truth. What will drive last day's Christianity? Man's desires. The kind of teaching that will go on in the church in the last days will be palatable to man. It will present the therapeutic gospel. It will present the God who exists to glorify you, exalt you, satisfy self. And those are the days we're in. And we've got to be on guard because we're reminded here God is in heaven. We're on the earth. He's sovereign. That's the God we worship. And if that's the God we worship, he must be sovereign in worship. As saved people were called to worship. That's the reminder from Philip DeCourcy today on Know the Truth. It's part of a study on worship from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. For related resources, go online to ktt.org. As Philip shared today, our faith can only grow when we're at God's feet and in His Word each and every day. That's why at Know the Truth, we carefully prepare these Bible teaching messages, keeping them coming to you daily on the radio and on the web. And we're able to do this because of the generous support of friends like you. Do your part to keep Know the Truth on the air when you make a one-time donation today at 888-644-8811. Or better yet, sign up to give a monthly gift as one of our Truth Ambassadors. It's easy to give online at ktt.org. And when you make a donation of $20 or more today, we'll express our thanks with a special resource to prepare you for Easter. 
It's a handy booklet titled The Resurrection and You by well-known authors Josh McDowell and his son Sean. In a clear and concise fashion, Josh and Sean McDowell lay out the answers to common questions about the resurrection, giving you rock-solid evidence to bolster your faith and share with others. Ask for the book, The Resurrection and You, when you give $20 or more. Donate online at ktt.org or call 888-644-8811. And if you prefer to send a check, you can write to us at Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. We're also offering another great Easter resource that's available to all our new listeners. If you've never connected with us before, ask for Philip's message titled, Access Granted. It's a free CD message we'll send out to you today. Just call 888-644-8811. That's all for today. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Come back tomorrow for another great message from our study in Ecclesiastes. That's Tuesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I would wake up with a sore neck, maybe a headache, or feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. When I invented my pillow, I wanted it to where you could move the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep sleep faster, and you will stay there longer. It's not about how much time we spend in bed. It's about how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all of my own manufacturing right here in the United States. I have a 10-year warranty. You can wash and dry my pillow, and I give you a 60-day money-back guarantee so you have nothing to lose. And here's my best offer ever. You can buy one of my pillows and get one absolutely free. Call 800-517-3636 or go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WAVA. That's 800-516-3636 or go to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code WAVA, 800-517-3636. When you listen... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.